0: Welcome to the Labor Day episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios, here with Elizabeth Spires of the New York Times and elsewhere. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. It's Labor Day. We're going to talk about the state of labor in this country. We're going to talk about whether it has managed to hold on to the gains it made during the pandemic and whether. Capital is losing. We're going to talk about the SEC, which really is losing. It just lost a big case against a company called Grayscale about crypto. So, we're going to ask what that means for crypto regulation. We are going to talk about stock ownership, which I guess is the converse of the labor market, right? We're all buying into capital and whether it comes with the side of guilt these days and whether you should feel guilty about not voting all of those stocks that you own. We have a Slate Plus segment on the worst jobs that each of us ever had. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So, Emily Peck, it's Labor Day.
1: Happy Labor Day, almost. Happy
0: Labor Day. Day. It's the the long weekend for most of us. It's a nice time for us to hang out with our families and not go to work, which is obviously the first thing you should do on Labor Day is not do any labor. Um, You are the keeper of the labor beat here at Slate Money. And so I wanted to ask you, has labor changed profoundly and forever? Um, As a result of the pandemic, which was kind of my thesis in my book, or has labor just reverted to exactly where we were pre-pandemic and basically it was a blip and nothing really has changed, which is more or less what we're seeing in a lot of the big macroeconomic statistics right now?
1: Um, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Labor has changed, definitely, I think. And probably permanently, on the other hand, labor has also come down to earth a bit. So what I mean is the great resignation, which you just mentioned, appears to be over. The latest data is showing that that phenomenon is kind of cooling off. So people aren't taking on new jobs at the breakneck speed they were for the past few years. So fine, that's over but something that happened in the pandemic is people started demanding more from their jobs, whether that's better pay or better benefits or just better treatment, more flexibility. Those trends are still happening with us. They're still with us now. I mean, and one indicator that they're still with us now is just the level of strike activity we're seeing, like, at the most extreme end, right, with writers and actors strike. We had the, the potential UPS Walkout that was resolved with this like amazing contract every every few weeks, a CEO makes an announcement about how he wants workers to come back to the office, and this is it. He really means it. <laughs> he means it this time. And like it just doesn't happen. and the numbers of people who are still remote are are elevated. And I think that's likely to be the case for a while. So I don't know if that answers your question, Felix.
0: So one of the things we saw in the jobs report that came out on Friday is that the unemployment rate went up for all the right reasons. Basically, we had more jobs in the economy. In fact, we beat expectations for the number of jobs created in August. But the number of people who entered the workforce went up by like 750,000. It was huge. And that increased the number of people looking for jobs. They entered the workforce. They didn't find jobs, so they count as unemployed. And and this rhymes with a story you wrote this week about mothers coming into the workforce in uh, levels and rates that have basically never been seen before. That a lot of people are in the workforce now who maybe had been sitting out for many many years and that seems like a positive trend.
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, the story this week, I'm I'm really excited about it, but I don't know if people want me to talk about it anymore, so I'm really glad you you brought it up. <laughs> but <laughs> basically, women with young children, those under age 5 are in the workforce like never before. Um the their labor force participation rate is at a record high and it has spiked. Whereas like other groups are sort of back to the levels they were pre-pandemic. And the reason is is remote work, I think. I, it's not 100% clear yet what the reason is, but I mean, it, it would make sense if it's remote work. I mean, let's say you just had a baby and your maternity leave ends because it's the United States and it was only eight weeks long. In the past, you'd have to make a decision. Do I go into the office every day from now on and like have that hard transition? But thanks to remote work, you kind of can muddle through it in a different way. You can be at home. You don't have to put on your hard pants yet. You can still have your baby around. You can nurse. Like you can you can kind of figure it out in a more flexible way. And it doesn't stigmatize you the way it maybe would have pre-pandemic. You can just kind of do it. I think that's helped keep a lot of these women attached to the workforce and and I think that's a that's a sea change that maybe sticks around.
2: Yeah, I think people also kind of mistakenly get the impression that the great resignation was about people quitting work altogether. And for the most part it was just people going to jobs that offered them more flexibility or higher pay because the you know we're in a tight labor market and in some cases just dropping out of the labor market in order to start a business and reenter it that way. So
0: I have a question, Emily, about this maternity leave thing slash working with kids under five, which is do you think that this is actually possibly going to become institutionalized that American companies are going to say, sure, you get your eight weeks of parental leave, but then also once that's over, we'll give you another 12 weeks of you can just work entirely from home. That kind of thing, like after you have a kid, and it becomes part of the parental leave policy. I feel like that would make so much sense on a bunch of different levels, even at companies which are trying to get people back to the office a certain number of days a week.
1: I mean, that's a good question. That kind of benefit was around before the pandemic, where it was like you could have like a transitional return to work, but it was like a very formalized benefit. And I think that now what's happening is people are just used to working from home when they need to. And that's a better benefit for women and mothers because it's like everyone can kind of do that. So it's not like the special thing, you know, that you have to like have a set amount of time, you know, 12 weeks of flex leave or whatever. Instead, it's just like, you know, if you're not feeling ready to come back in the office, we get it. Like we have a system in place. It's not just like you're calling into the conference call and everyone else is there in person. It's like there's already a Zoom going on. People might be in, in the office in person, but they're all at their desks on the Zoom, you know, so the whole system is there now. Yeah. So it's not as stigmatized as it was in the in the past, if that makes sense.
2: Do you think there's more support for family leave policies now because people have been at home? And I ask because there's there was a big backlash this week to a bill in Michigan that Republicans were trying to pass that would eliminate family leave for people with newborns are restricted to two weeks. And the people who were against it were referring to it as kind of a summer break for parents, which anybody who's had a newborn knows it, especially the first two weeks are the opposite of a break. And it occurs to me that, you know, a lot more men had to work from home and be around their kids during the day. Do you think that that might change attitudes toward the necessity of family leave policies, both in the in private companies and provided by the government.
1: Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen polling that shows that, but like it, it stands to reason that that could happen. Family leave is already pretty highly supported. I mean, there's um, Americans generally have a positive opinion about it. I mean, notwithstanding the people you're talking about in Michigan. You've obviously oh, it? never had a <laughs> um, newborns. <laughs> obviously. Uh, Elizabeth is, is, a is
0: extremely good at finding these people who are, who come up with these opinions. <laughs> 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 you're like, what? Really? Okay. I think
2: they find her, they too. Do. I, have, I they're, think they're so. Yes, they do. Um, um, <laughs>
0: but, but, Elizabeth, tell me, like, on a very big picture, given given that it's Labor Day, and it's a good, quite a good time to ask this, what do you where do you think we are in terms of the sort of pendulum of of the division of power between capital and labor? Clearly, you know, one of the things we saw in the wake of the pandemic, was the pendulum swing very far towards labor. And we wound up with this very tight labor market. People could negotiate incredible terms, not only in terms of pay, but also in terms of working conditions. Jobs with the worst pay and the worst working conditions found themselves having to raise wages just massively, sometimes doubling them in order to attract any workers at all. And, you know, we had things like the UPS strike, that, that deal coming through and everyone going, wow, you know, labor has a lot of power, is do you think we're still very much at that, you know, even though wage gains have slowed, and there's a little bit more slack in the labor force? Do you think that the pendulum is still very much on the side of labor right now? Or is it swinging back?
2: Well, I think there's a cultural trend happening where union participation rates have been declining for years, but we're seeing new industries start to get unionized. And, and I feel like these, these things are much more public stories than they used to be. So it's occurring to people that they can unionize. And, and I think it's easier for workers to learn how to do that. So I'm optimistic that unionization is, is maybe on an upward climb, which is a reversal from what's been happening for the last decade.
1: I mean, there was a Gallup poll, I think it was late last year, maybe early this year, that showed Americans supporting unions at rates last seen in the 60s, which is pretty interesting considering what Elizabeth said, the union membership itself has been declining for years and years and really hasn't done much. But support for unions is, is record high.
0: And then there's what I always think of as, like, the shadow unions, which is nothing officially recognized by the National Labor Relations Board or anything like that. But it's just, like, the black channel slack conversations between a bunch of, you know, entry-level workers in various white-collar jobs where they all just talk to each other and say... We're not going to put up with this. We're going to collectively complain about this. You know, even at Goldman Sachs, we saw that with that famous PowerPoint saying, like, we're all incredibly overworked. There was, you know, in terms of work from home, there's a bunch of cases where an engineering department was told they needed to return to the office. And then the following day, the entire engineering department, like, en masse, just quit. And they were like, oh, shit, never mind. I guess you can just keep on working from home. Like, And there was no union involved in these cases. But there was collective action of some description.
2: I think the pandemic was kind of an existential crisis for people, and it really made them relocate the role of work in their lives besides just you know sustaining basic needs. So I I think some of it too is just people have rethought the extent to which they're willing to sacrifice for a high-intensity job. So the the, the scenario you're talking about, we have high-powered engineers who say, no, we're not coming back into the office. You know, some of that is when people are actually at home with their kids and there's a pandemic happening and they're seeing people dying. Like you know, you you sort of start to recalibrate how much time you think you should be spending in the office working on your job and and the the importance of your job and whether it provides meaning for you. And, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's something that is not gonna, you know, change anytime soon.
1: Also, people have recalibrated their lives like you find new exercise routines and other kinds of rituals maybe that you do with your family that you didn't do before that you more want to hold on to and when someone says you have to go back to the office you're like well how do i fit in my 2 hour workout and <laughs> but i always have breakfast with the family and i'm i'm not speaking from experience at all um <clears throat> but you know you just sort of like grow around it and it's hard to go back after three years and it is an empowering kind of thing right to take your time back and use it for something good yeah
0: for sure um let me just finish by asking about monetary policy because this is something that the fed cares a lot about they have a mandate to have full employment and they also have a mandate to bring inflation down to two percent and there was this feeling that unemployment would need to rise substantially in order for the inflation target to be hit. And the Fed is very clear that that's their number one priority right now is for the inflation target to be hit and that they'll be okay with rising unemployment if that's what it takes. So so the big question is, in monetary policy circles, do we really need that? Is it going to take that? Or can we have this kind of unique and unprecedented situation where the pendulum has still swung towards labor and labor still has power but not so much in terms of wage gains and not so much in terms of inflation and we get to call the shots more in our work without necessarily driving inflation by getting these these massive pay hikes every year
1: I think that's maybe possible. (laughs) And I think it's in part because of something I've been writing about a lot, which is the fact that there are less workers than we kind of need. So workers are just going to be in demand in the United States and in other rich countries for the next decades. Workers, unless we can all be automated out of work, which I don't think we can, are just going to be in higher demand. And that might not mean extraordinary inflationary wage gains, but it's going to mean a new level of power, I think, for a lot of employees that we haven't seen in a long time.
2: Also, Larry Summers said that we needed much more unemployment to have inflation go down. And anytime he says something, I'm inclined to believe the opposite.
0: (laughs) It's, it's, It's a good rule of thumb.
1: Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet. And it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more Wondery Means Business. So let's talk about the SEC, which lost a big court case this week Um, for a long time now, for years. This company, Grayscale, has had this massive pile of Bitcoins. I think they own like 4 or 5% of all Bitcoins in existence, and they put them in this box called GBTC, and then you can buy shares in this box. But it isn't an ETF, and when they really want to be an ETF. If it's an ETF, then you can basically put bitcoins in you can take bitcoins out you can sell the bitcoins and the price per share of the box basically reflects the price of bitcoin otherwise they're just like well what's the point of a box if i can't sell the bitcoin and you wind up with gbtc's selling it like a 40 percent discount to its net asset value which is what we saw not so long ago and the sec has very consistently said to grayscale and to very many other people who wanted to open up Bitcoin ETFs. Yeah no, you're not allowed to open up a Bitcoin ETF. And the broad reason is just that Gary Gensler doesn't like Bitcoin and he doesn't want to encourage people to be buying shares that are Bitcoin because Bitcoin is a yeah, terrible thing and so he's basically denied all of these attempts to create Bitcoin ETFs and he has the right to deny that, but he needs to provide a reason. And his reason was always a little bit sketchy. It was something something about, like, you know, the ETF could be easily manipulated. And no one really thought it was a very good reason. And eventually, Grayscale took the SEC to court and said, this is a terrible reason. And the court agreed and basically said, you are being arbitrary and capricious when you are denying Grayscale's application for an ETF go away and come back and so this is where we're at right now the SEC has to go away and come back and decide what it wants to do and we're not we can speculate about what might happen and whether there might be a Bitcoin ETF and all of these kind of questions but I think the more interesting or the bigger question is like have we now just reached this very chaotic point in the annals of crypto regulation where the SEC is going to make decisions. The S- the, the, those decisions are going to wind up getting second-guessed by the courts. There's going to be a lot of litigation. There's going to be a lot of acrimony. Congress is clearly going to do absolutely nothing. And there is never going to be any clarity. That's my sort of base case for the time being.
1: Never? I, I think the, um, the crypto crash, are we calling it a crash or crypto winter, has made it a better time to kind of hash this stuff out in the courts And that always takes a really long time. We know that Congress isn't going to act. So now it's just going to have to be one of those issues that sort of gets worked out in the judicial system over years. And there's not as much demand for these products, I think. I think. Because of, you know crypto winter or crypto crash whatever you want to call it
0: well that that's definitely true if you look at demand for like nfts or if you look at the amount of revenue that Robinhood gets from trading crypto or like any of these mm-hmm. metrics if you look at like the Coinbase revenue who's is, is down like 80 percent you know yeah it's a, there's just much less interest in crypto these days because let's face it the reason why people are getting into all of this stuff was because they wanted to get rich quick, and they thought that they could buy it today and then sell it tomorrow for 10 times what they paid for it. And when that seems to be impossible, why even bother?
1: Yeah, it's like get rich quick or get regulated slow, right? I mean, this (laughs) is just going to take a a really long, long time, and the stakes seem to have gotten lower because so many of the bad actors have been like pushed out anyway.
0: And there is one big actor left which is binance and there's been a bunch of headlines this week about you know maybe there's some some big next shoe to drop for binance but basically Mm. the two big actors in terms of trading cryptocurrency ultimately if you're in the crypto world you need some way to convert your dollars into crypto or your crypto into dollars and the two globally dominant firms that ever used to do that were FTX and Binance. FTX is obviously imploded, doesn't really exist anymore. Binance is the last man standing, and there's a very good chance that they are going to be hit by some major criminal lawsuits pretty soon.
1: Mm. My last thought maybe is just thinking about like the great financial crisis, unwinding and regulating after that is a process that you could argue is still going on, <laughs> um, right? I mean, banking regulations are still being... Tweaked coming out of that crisis. So I feel like this is the pace that makes sense.
0: Except for what we saw in the wake of the financial crisis was a huge bipartisan consensus mm. to put together Dodd Frank right. and right. a huge international consensus to put together Basel 3 mm-hmm. And between them, Dodd Frank and Basel 3 really did create a whole new world of financial regulation and basically a bunch of people saying, like, we screwed up pre crisis and we want to make sure that we don't have another financial crisis like this again we're going to try and prevent it through regulation and there was broad agreement on how to prevent that and there was yeah. a broad agreement on what to do what we have right now in crypto is absolutely no broad agreement at all you have all of the crypto people are still saying what they were saying pre FTX which is like we need special rules just for us um and meanwhile everyone else in the regulatory world is basically saying no you don't and mm-hmm. No one is clarifying anything. And I think one of the problems with what you're saying about working it out through the judicial process Mm -hmm. is to just look at the Southern District of New York. Federal Court in New York recently had two major rulings on whether certain crypto coins are securities. And one woman ruled that XRP, which is this big you know, crypto coin was not a security. And then another guy, Joe Rakoff, came out and said, no, she's completely wrong. And you get all of these conflicting rulings in the court and no way to resolve what the law is absent any legislation, which I think we can all agree is not going to happen.
2: Well, that that case in particular, I think, also speaks to the central question, which is whether a token is a security And in that case, the judge ruled that it really depends on how they're sold, but there's no consensus on that. And I think the difference between the reaction to crypto winner and the credit crisis is just that during the credit crisis, we were dealing with products that we understand and know and everybody's familiar with. And I don't think that's true, at least for Congress, members of Congress. I, I don't think that they fully understand crypto products to begin with. So getting people to sort of wrap their heads around how these things should should be classified is difficult because it's just not clear in some of these cases. A crypto token can behave like a commodity or you know, with some modifications, it's a security.
0: And actually, this is this is very much the issue at stake in the Grayscale GBTC case as well, right? It is, it is undeniable that GBTC is a security, that ETFs are securities. Everyone understands that they are securities and that the SEC has jurisdiction over them. What happened is there was a very clever little bit of regulatory arbitrage by a couple of other funds trying to create basically Bitcoin ETFs. And they created these ETFs, but instead of linking them to Bitcoin, they decided to link them to Bitcoin futures as traded on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And Bitcoin futures, everyone can agree, are not securities. They are derivatives that are not regulated by the SEC. They are regulated by the CFTC. And way back in the day when the CFTC approved Bitcoin futures on the CME, they basically created the groundwork for someone to create an ETF linked to these approved Bitcoin futures. And that was a little like end run around the SEC. The SEC basically had to approve those because the CFTC had already signed off on them. And then now the court is saying, well, if you're going to allow an ETF based on Bitcoin futures... There's no reason why you shouldn't allow an ETF based on Bitcoin because they're basically identical. And it's a reasonable argument. But yeah. again, I think, you know, we come down to this, like these weird regulatory turf wars, right, between the SEC and the CFTC. And we come down to these weird, like, who cares whether it's a security or not? What matters is like what it does, whether you can invest in it, all of these kind of things. But, you know, ultimately, because we have this dumb situation where like the agriculture committee in in the senate wants to retain power so they you know keep the cftc separate from the sec which is run by the you know finance committee like the whole thing is or you know the banking committee like the whole thing just it's really dumb and it's one of the reasons why we're never going to get any clarity i
1: think one reason that we're not going to see regulation besides all the ones you just laid out felix something that elizabeth kind of hinted at earlier which is like not only don't lawmakers maybe understand the products here, it's like they don't touch people's real lives the way the financial crisis and the mortgage crash and all that did. It was clear what had happened. People had made bets on, you know, homes and it was very clear, like something had gone wildly wrong with the system because people were allowed to buy, multi- you know, get mortgages with nothing down and no, 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 Like, everyone saw that something really bad had happened in the financial system and everyone understood what had happened and in the case of crypto most mainstream people didn't really understand what was going on with crypto the whole time and i think there's an argument to be made here and i don't know if i can make it very well but like it seems like with crypto a lot of the bad guys got like caught and went to jail like sam bangman fried's like locked up right now behind bars like so it kind of seems like well something was done people went to jail whereas with the financial crisis you know everyone always says no one went to jail blah 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 congress has to do something well in the case of crypto you know a lot of the bad actors got rooted out they literally are in jail that's all it's all done like what do the regulators even need to do anymore who who cares if like there's a fight
0: one one of the things we really have seen is very aggressive criminal prosecutions that people have gone to jail people have been convicted of crimes like buying an nft ahead of that nft like appearing on the homepage of some nft company opensea or something <laughs> like that right and you're like what and a judge basically decided or a judge basically decided that this counted as insider trading and therefore it was prison worthy and these are very aggressive prosecutions. There's no like law against front-running NFT placement on websites, but people managed to find the case and bring the case, and they actually prosecuted it and won that prosecution. And the mm-hmm. DOJ has been far more aggressive in crypto, partly because there was never this fear that they would win. Right? If you remember back to the financial crisis, the reason mm-hmm. why the DOJ never... Um, or one of the stated reasons why the DOJ didn't bring criminal prosecutions against banks was, well, what if they win? What would happen to the banks? What would happen to the entire banking system if the DOJ started winning those cases? And people were terrified of that. No one actually cares if the crypto system implodes, and therefore people are feeling much freer to bring these prosecutions.
1: Is there an argument to be made that it was good that no one went to prison Or jail from the financial crisis? Almost no one, because we got stronger regulation somehow out of it. Yeah. Or
0: (laughs) yeah. I mean, like that—that is—I have I have seen that argument made, and I'm not sure I would make it myself, and I'm not sure I wouldn't make it myself. Tim Geithner always used to call this a desire for Old Testament justice. Right? He's Mm -hmm. like something bad happened, and we need to see someone punished for it there's like a psychological need for that and geithner was always very dismissive of this concept he was like come on we're we're more grown up than that these days we don't need old testament justice we can just try and create a system that is robust and that works and that you know we, we don't destroy the entire you know financial infrastructure of the planet but i do think that on some level he was wrong like he was right in his Analysis and wrong in his verdict, right? He was right that people wanted Old Testament, Old Testament justice. And in fact, because people wanted it, we did kind of needed it at some point. And a couple of like high profile show trials would have gone quite far into sort of making people think that it wasn't just the lower income homeowners who lost their houses who suffered from here but it was from the crisis but it was also the financiers who kind of caused the crisis in in the first place
1: i'm kind of obsessed with this idea now because it kind of explains a lot of what's going on (laughs) in the american criminal justice system even if you, you focus on punishing the bad actors but not on on fixing the system like that happens all the time. I mean, I'm not I don't want to talk about politics, but you can even make that case with all the Trump prosecutions. Like they're going after him and his cronies, but like there's no effort to sort of fix any systemic issues.
2: The conventional wisdom about the financial crisis though is that people were not really held accountable, and I think it's because there you know there were not individuals who were prosecuted. And it just reinforces the idea that we have a two-tiered justice system where if you're poor, you can end up in Rikers because somebody accused you of stealing a sandwich. And if you're wealthy, you can commit crimes that affect, you know, millions of people and walk away from it. So I, I think that's the that's the fundamental sense of injustice that people That are is the sense of it.
0: injustice, but but there's also the other like inconvenient truth here that it's not obvious that you know the the high-powered financiers in 2006 and 2007 were committing crimes right winning those cases would have been very very difficult even if they had been brought just because it caused him a global financial crisis does not mean that it was illegal what the doj is doing in the crypto world is is finding it much much easier to make and bring criminal cases. Yeah. Like you know, if you talk to the prosecutors around the financial crisis, they're like, you know, they did look at possible cases, and if you if they were, you know, it was never completely obvious. And you'd need to, if you did bring those cases, then you'd need to bring those cases in the knowledge that there was a pretty good chance that you would lose. And no one was willing to take that chance. It was not obvious. Well, with crypto, it's like let's go. Exactly
1: Let's get them (laughs) Let's lock up that vegan Or whatever (laughs) He's a vegan?
0: Yeah Something that Effective altruists Or vegans or both Yeah
1: (laughs) This is the story of the one As a maintenance engineer He hears things differently To the untrained ear Everything on his shop floor Might sound fine But he can hear gears grinding Or a belt slipping so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
0: Okay, there's one other thing I wanted to talk about this week, and that was a very interesting survey that was done by a company called public public is a little bit like robin hood it's one of those brokerages where you can trade stocks free and they just did a survey of their customers and their customers said a bunch of things they were like oh yeah we are really boning up on learning about companies and analyzing stocks and that kind of stuff and then they said oh yeah we are totally voting in proxy votes like some something like 25% of them were like, I voted in the proxy vote like this year, just in 2023. And they said, oh yeah, we really care about ESG and we, we want to invest in companies that are ESG or conversely, like we really want to not invest in companies which are ESG because we think that those companies are going to have a uh, sacrificing financial gains because they're caring too much about woke things or whatever, whatever it is, right. They, answered very much as though they needed to care and think about what they were investing in. It was very much active investor mindset, right? As opposed to, you know, your standard passive Gen X kind of, I'm just going to buy an index fund and, or an S and P 500 ETF and walk away and just not care because I've got better, you know, more important things to worry about in my life. And, Basically, I don't believe that you can take this poll at face value. I don't believe if 25% of Publix investors said they voted in proxy votes this year, that that means that 25% of public's investors voted in proxy votes this year. I would guess, and I've read some of the literature on this, that the actual number is more like 5%. But what you have, as everyone knows, Elizabeth knows better than anyone like in, in the polling world, You have this thing called social desirability bias that when you get asked a question, what you wind up doing is you wind up answering it in a way that puts yourself in a better light or is the answer that you think the pollster is expecting to hear from you. And what in turn that says to me is that if you're seeing answers that are so far away from reality... Like, all of these people saying, like, I check ESG metrics before I invest in a company. It's like, no, you don't. I know that you don't because it's impossible to find these metrics. There is no way you can look them up. They barely exist, you know? So the question is, like, why are these people lying? And the reason they're lying is because somehow they've got the message that they should be doing these things. And that message is fascinating to me.
2: To me, that sounds like also maybe a sampling problem where they're oversampling accidentally for people who are a little bit progressive (laughs) or they think that, you know, they should care about these things. And that's really built into whatever their value system is. And then some of it's about survey design. It's, it's, you know, when you ask somebody, would you do something that they know they should do? They will always say yes, because they can imagine a future version of themselves that would do it. So like if you ask people, are you going to vote in primary, even if they've never done it, they will usually say yes. Uh, And the better way to get data is to ask about historical behavior um, and in a kind of neutral, value neutral way so that they don't feel like they're being judged if they have to report that no, they've never looked at an ESG metric or something like that.
1: I think, I mean, Felix, on the one hand, I agree with you because that's, is what I do. Um, You know, I have 401k or IRAs, whatever. I don't, I don't take I don't pick stocks. I don't do any of that stuff. And even if I wasn't a financial journalist, I probably wouldn't do that stuff. So I think it's okay, obviously. But if you straight up ask me something like, "Is it okay to Emily to invest in a tobacco company?" I'd be like, "Not really. It's probably not okay." Like it doesn't feel right that everyone is just passively investing in stocks and in companies that are doing all sorts of bad stuff. Like intuitively, like, that just seems wrong. There's something funky going on. you know. Yeah,
2: but also, most people are not equipped to pick stocks individually. They don't know how to evaluate them. Right. So there's also a practical reason for just putting money into an index.
1: Right. But if I asked you, Elizabeth, like, is it okay to invest in, in oil companies that are, like, destroying the planet? Like, would you say what would you say would you say yes
2: i would say Fine. it depends on it. context i mean personally i'm <laughs> i'm anti fossil fuels so i probably wouldn't but i'm also a former equity analyst so i actually have picked stocks before professionally so i think i'm not the baseline person who would should be sampled in a situation like this
1: like maybe the world would be a better place <laughs> If not everyone was passively investing, am I am I wrong? Felix Felix will explain now. Why
0: I'm wrong. <laughs> no no, I mean, uh, it's a really good question, right? And let's go back to this question of proxy votes, right? which is which is where I think individual investors conceivably might be able to make a bit of a difference. Um, Mm -hmm. When it comes in, like, do I invest in this company or do I not? Right? Do I invest in the tobacco company or the oil company or do I not? One of the things which I've railed about on this show in the past is if you divest from the company, that doesn't harm the company right it just means that someone else owns the stock rather than you your money is not going to the company your money is just going to someone else who owned the stock before you so this whole question of like what do i own and and do they align with my values is is pretty tenuous because like that whole process of buying and selling stocks it's it's very much a secondary market thing very very rarely does anyone actually give money to the company that they are actually investing in um Mm -hmm. when it comes to proxy votes however it's you know you you are voting in an election and if there's a proxy saying like we want you to adopt a net zero target and people vote on it then that vote can have real effect on how the company behaves
1: right but if you zoom out i think the idea that people feel like they should have like an ethical position about their investments or something i think that holds for a lot of people. But yeah, I'm just I think, generalizing I think, for myself. <laughs> no, I think
0: I think you're right. And and certainly you know, I'm in Europe right now and almost everyone in Europe invests with some kind of an ESG lens. You know, they they're they're saying like I want my funds to help contribute to this Paris goal or the Glasgow goal or whatever it was of net zero. And that's great. And and sort of when you are part of a big pension fund, say as people still are in Europe or insurance company and you you encourage your insurer or you encourage your pension fund to take the billions of dollars they have and vote them in a certain way then you can have an impact you know when you're just when you've when you've become disaggregated to the point at which you have your own brokerage account at public.com and you own a fractional share of apple and you're like should i vote my fractional share of apple it's like no one cares it's not important
1: yeah i would only add and i think we talked about this at the time that it's hard i think it's hard to know when the vote is and how to do it it's
0: super hard yeah <laughs> like and, and maybe they make it easier. And, and it's and it's way you know and it's way too easier, much hard work. Like, we have a lot of things going on in our lives people when we vote in elections, we do that like once every two years, pretty much. And even that is like, okay, this is my thing that I do every two years, and I care about, it, and I'll look it up, and I'll, you know, people will mm-hmm. advertise to me, and they'll make a decision, and I'll vote. Like proxy votes happen every week. If you have, you know, a diversified S and P five hundred fund or something, you're you're going to be voting like there's all manner of random shit that happens. You have no idea which ones are important, which ones are worth caring about. No one has enough time to research all of those votes. No wonder. You need some way of collectivizing your vote and saying, like, I want to just go with whatever this person is recommending. Because trying to do this on an individual basis is just way too much work for way too many people for way too little outcome. So, yeah, the question is, if you are one of the majority of Slate Money listeners who owns stocks in one way or another, you know, should you feel guilty if you don't vote? in proxy votes should you feel guilty if you aren't checking those companies against esg metrics um before investing in them and my answer to that is no and no but maybe you guys uh maybe you guys think well you probably don't do it but you should feel guilty about it
1: yeah that's me i feel like i (laughs) i feel guilty about pretty much everything like someone i know gets in (laughs) trouble i'm like how could i have prevented that and um so that holds for me here too. Like I'll I still f- feel a little guilty. Like I probably own shares in companies doing wrong things. I probably should stay on pay the next time I don't know Tim Cook's compensation comes up or something. I don't I don't even know what I'm not voting on. And I feel guilty about that. Yeah,
2: I do.
0: Elizabeth, can you like break the tie here?
2: Yeah, I'm kind of well, <laughs> I'm sort of middle of the road about this. I think People are incapable of evaluating every single decision in their life and picking the the absolute most moral one. It's like if, if you if you try to do that, you end up choosing between breakfast cereals <laughs> and you know thinking about supply chain issues. So my my theory is, uh, you know, something is better than nothing. Pick a few things that you're gonna do and commit to them. You know, and it might be I'm gonna be a vegan because I feel like it's better for the environment. I'm gonna pay attention to where my investments are, uh, but you can't do everything.
0: Okay, let's have a numbers round. Uh, Elizabeth, do you have a number?
2: Uh, Yeah, it's 43, and that's percent. And that's the number of workers who are back at their desks in New York City, per our earlier conversation. And 1 in 11 workers in New York have ties to the financial industry. So I'm not quite sure how that works out in terms of how many people are back at banks. But I I was thinking about the uh, Jamie Dimon quote from July, where he said something like, um, You know, I get it. You don't want to commute an hour and a half. Nobody does. But you also just don't have to have a job at J.P. Morgan. And I think longer term, you know, the banks are not really going to win that battle. They're trying to bring everybody back into the office five days a week. And there's a lot of pushback. And they're going to end up with some happy medium where maybe it's four days a week or there's some flex time. I don't know. I don't think we're going to go back to uh, pre-pandemic in the office 24-7.
1: No one's coming back on Friday. Friday is dead. Like, that's over. It's litigated, (laughs) and summer Fridays are all year round. I think I saw a headline saying that this morning. But uh, Friday, the battle for Friday has been won. I'm going (laughs) to just say that right now.
0: Emily, what's your number?
1: Felix, my number, and Elizabeth, and (laughs) listeners, my number, my number is 5 million. That is... The number of bees, <gasps> bees that fell oh. off a truck that fell off a truck in Canada earlier this week. That's right. Five million bees were being transported in Burlington, Ontario when the hives came loose from their straps, and they slipped free. And to quote the beekeeper on the scene, it was a pretty crazy cloud of bees out there on the highway in Canada. <laughs> It took a dozen beekeepers to corral them. The truck driver, who was not wearing protective gear because I guess this doesn't usually happen, was stung a hundred times, but he was fine. So it was a it was a real sting operation, my friends.
0: Oh, <laughs> Emily! Sorry, um, not sorry. I yeah, as Emily knows, I am mildly obsessed with this bee thing right now. There's You didn't know that? There's this no. there was this great David Siegel piece in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, basically talking about how bees became super trendy, especially in cities like the Museum of Modern yeah. Art has bees on its roof and all of this kind of stuff. And there are way too many honeybees in cities right now and what they're doing <laughs> is they are dry, they are basically making all of the other pollinators go extinct and they're really bad for the environment and everyone thinks that what we need is more bees and in fact what we need is less bees and um, there's a huge fight about how do we stop people from p- thinking that putting a beehive in their back garden is a good thing because in fact it's a terrible thing.
2: Yeah. City bees are fascinating though. There's, there's like a, there's a story a few years ago about somebody who like a beekeeper who actually does, you know, bottle honey and stuff. And I think he was in Brooklyn or Queens and the bees started making this bright red honey and it was sweet and it tasted kind of weird and he couldn't figure out why. And it was because the bees were going to, uh, somewhere near the domino factory, there was a candy manufacturer that made peppermints (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so the bees were going into whatever the syrup was that they used for flavoring, which was bright red, and he ended up with uh, peppermint honey as a result. Well, that's just cool. <laughs> 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 yeah, the bees
1: are kind of – we have a lot of bees where I live, and we have hummingbird feeder out front, and it's so nice. The hummingbird comes and you know eats from the feeder, which is also bright red liquid. But the bees, they come and they take all the hummingbird's food, and of course – You are always afraid of getting stung. So this is an interesting development, Felix, I did not know about.
0: Moving on from bees, uh, my number is 37,000, which is the number of euros that you need to pay in order to buy an electric car in Europe called the Jeep Avenger. And for various reasons, the Salmon family has been interested in Purchasing an electric vehicle at some point in the future. And we discovered the Jeep Avenger and it looked really cool and not insanely expensive. And it won Car of the Year in Europe. And we were like, oh my God, there's finally this really great electric Jeep that people love. So maybe this should be our next car. And then we discovered that the Jeep Avenger will never be sold in the United States. And you know why? Why? because it's too small what the Amer- apparently the good people at jeep or stellantis as it is now known um have determined that while the europeans will be will happily squeeze into the jeep Avenger, which is a perfectly large car you know you can fit four or five adults in it and you know it's four doors and all the rest of it like well while, while the europeans are cool with that the smallest that the um americans will go is the jeep renegade which is like half an inch longer something like that and they're like oh we can't go half an inch shorter than jeep renegade i'm like jeep renegade is fine there are loads of jeep renegades why can't you go half an inch shorter (laughs) apparently nope that's just not gonna that's not gonna roll in america literally literally Okay, that's it, I think. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for sending us emails, at slate.com. Thanks to Patrick Fort for producing. We're going to have a Slate Plus segment on the worst jobs we ever had. And, and we will be back on Monday with the next episode of our Slate Money Criminal series. This one's on Joe Lowe, the Malaysian mastermind behind the 1MDB scandal.